Heavenly Father, we want that last song to be true for each and every one of us. We want to be able to sing that all we have is Christ and that Christ indeed is our life. If that single chorus might be true in our lives, Lord, how blessed immeasurably we would be. We do believe, Father, that we were all subject to the elementary principles of this world, cursed under the law, enslaved to the idols of our flesh. We know, Father, that you sent your Son Christ to save us from that miserable state. We know, Father, there is nothing we could do to save ourselves, nothing to overcome the curse of the law, nothing to set us free from the idols we bow down to daily other than your Son. But He did not have to come. You could have sent each and every one of us to the right condemnation we deserve for our sin and rebellion. But out of His infinite love for you and His infinite love for mankind, He did come in the flesh, under the law, to redeem sinners like us, not only from the ravages of hell, but to bring us into the family and make us your sons and your daughters. We're here this morning recognizing that ugly and wonderful truth that we are unworthy through and through of being called sons and daughters, but you have made us worthy through the sacrifice of Christ. I ask, Lord, that as millions have paused this time of year to recognize the incarnation of your Son, they would have its right impact on your church that we would move beyond the, the celebrations of Christmas and the presents and the dinners. And we would recognize, Lord, that the great gift of the incarnation is for us now and for us ever. That in sending Christ, we might become heirs of the kingdom with Him. That this season never passes for your children. For we're always blessed and one day we'll always be in the presence of the man who became a man for us. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us this morning, that you would give us ears to hear from Galatians chapter 4, and that we might respond properly by your Spirit. If we're tired, Father, I pray you'd wake us up. If we're distracted, I pray you would give us sobriety and clarity. If our hearts are hard, I pray you would break them into a thousand pieces right now that the Spirit might take the word that is proclaimed from this text and apply it to us that we might be changed. Lord, you sent Christ that we might become sons and daughters and live as heirs right now. And I pray you would do that. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do this work here at Cambrian Park not only to bless those who are here but that we might have the right impact in our community that we might bring the gospel of grace to our family and friends and to the lost at work and here in Cambrian Park, 
that they too might realize that they are enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, that they too might hear the gospel, cry out for mercy, and become sons and daughters of grace. We praise you, Lord, for this time. We know it is um, uncommon in many places in the world. I pray we do not take it for granted that we can gather like this and sing to you and pray to you and proclaim the gospel boldly by your grace without being arrested or put to death. Uh, Give us grateful hearts. Give us humble hearts. I pray you use a sinner like me to proclaim these wonderful truths. In Christ's name, amen. I have a voice today. I didn't have a voice last Sunday. I didn't have much last Sunday. I'm so thankful Pastor Kurt at 5 a.m. took a call and said, okay. I'm so thankful that uh, he has a love for God and a love for the Word that he was able to put that together so quickly. Um, this time of year is a, it's a, a difficult time for a lot of people. Uh, I was just reading these last couple days how, how much of the culture responds to what they're calling now the post-Christmas blues. You know, the, the presents have been opened, the, the meals have been eaten, families gone back to their homes, and there's that sense of, of loss or depression or the fact that it's now over and we have to wait a, another full year. Um, I don't believe Christians can experience that. If you are celebrating Christmas properly, you cannot experience post-Christmas blues. Each year, Christmas, it comes and goes and although the culture still tips its hat at baby Jesus, doesn't go much beyond baby Jesus, the holiday for the most part has become a secular celebration. I, I do believe that Lucy from Charlie Brown summed it up well in that famous scene where she's flirting with Schroeder and trying to get him to play Jingle Bells. If you know it, she says, Jingle Bells, you know. Santa Claus and ho-ho-ho and mistletoe and presents to pretty girls. And she summed up, I think, well, the secular celebration of Christmas. In the third century A.D., the Roman Empire, before it embraced Christianity under Constantine, it celebrated the rebirth of Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, as it returned on December 25th and days became longer and longer. And during that time, they also combined it with a, another celebration called Saturnalia. And it was a time when families got together and they feasted and they exchanged presents. It wasn't until 336 A.D. that Constantine, upon becoming a Christian, or at least professing Christ, instituted Christmas on December 25th as a formal day throughout the empire to recognize the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful he did. I'm not terribly concerned about all the pagan trappings that surround Christmas. I'm thankful that he commanded the world to stop one day a year and recognize and celebrate God becoming a man. And I believe that Christians ought to do that as well. The most significant event in human history is what we are to celebrate on December 25th. Long before Lucy... And long before Constantine, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, was reminding the church of the importance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of the second person becoming a man in flesh and blood. And he did that not only to increase their understanding of God's plan, His redemptive plan in history, but to show them 
that there's great joy and spiritual well-being in never forgetting the incarnate Christ. You see, many in Galatia had been, as Paul said in Galatians 3.1, they had been bewitched. And he wrote the letter for several reasons, but primarily because a group of men came in called Judaizers, and they were trying to teach the Galatians that it wasn't by grace alone that someone saved. It was grace plus works. In this particular case, it was grace plus physical circumcision that you had to do if you wanted to be fully accepted by God. In other words, they were preaching a false gospel. Salvation by grace plus works, not grace alone through Jesus Christ. And as many of you celebrated Christmas last week and I imagine plan to celebrate this New Year's coming up, there will be a tendency for you to either add to the gospel grace plus something else or deny its power by continuing to serve many of the worthless idols that still have you bound in your life. I would like to help us this morning accomplish this great task of having the incarnation part and parcel of our daily life on December 25th, today, and all of next year and for the rest of our lives. That we might see the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the power that elicits in those who repent and believe. And I want to do that this morning by asking and then answering three questions. And I pray that you are with me this morning. Number one, what problem needed to be solved? I mean, there's great discussion on December 25th about Jesus becoming a man. Why? What problem needed to be solved? Number two, why did the Son of God have to solve it? And number three, how did the incarnation benefit mankind? So what problem needed to be solved? Why did the Son of God have to solve it? Why couldn't it be solved by someone else? And then what benefit is it to us if we believe this? Point number one, what problem needed to be solved? In Galatians chapter 3, Paul actually describes the law of God as a prison warden and God's people being imprisoned under it. Look back with me, if you would, at verse 23, Galatians 3. Paul writes, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so he was, he was talking about the slavery that all mankind is under because the law does not save us. It's a tutor that what? It leads us to Christ. It leads us to faith in Christ. And then here in Galatians 4, he develops the theme of slavery further and a little differently. Look at verse 29 in Galatians 3. Paul says, If you are Christ, then you are, an, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So if you're in Christ... You're no longer under the law, you're an heir, you're an heir according to the promise that God made to Abraham that he would make him the father of what? Of many nations. Now look at verse 1 in chapter 4. I mean that the heir, speaking of the heir of Abraham, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. And so Paul moves from a, uh, an illustration in Galatians 3 of being imprisoned under the law to being a child in a house, a wealthy house, a house with an estate, but he's too young to inherit it. 
he's still under guardians and managers until the date is set by the father to make him owner, to make him heir. The word heir literally is kurios. You know that. It's lord or lord of the estate. And it was talking about a minor or a child who had to live under rules. They call them guardians or managers. In essence, just like a slave. And so just as the Jews were enslaved under the law, the child of the estate is held bound as a slave until when? Until the day set by his father. Until the father changes the son's status from heir apparent to heir in action to true owner of the estate. In other words, before the minor becomes of age, he's no different than a slave. In fact, the same words, guardians and managers here, are used in Galatians 3 to describe the state of slavery. And then Paul does something amazing here. He takes Galatians chapter 3 and then verses 1 1 and 2, and he takes slavery and he makes it the, the common plight of all mankind. These two illustrations, being slaves under the law and then being slaves in the house, he applies to you and to me. Look at verse 3. Paul said, In the same way we also, we were children, were, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so Paul does something quite extraordinary. He brings Jews and Gentiles under one umbrella. And he says, This is the common lot from Genesis chapter 3 to this present hour until Christ comes again in glory, mankind is enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. For the Jews, they were enslaved to the law. They had received it, they possessed it, and they falsely believed that their submission to the law of God would grant them salvation. They believed they could be good enough, holy enough, that God would be pleased and grant them access into heaven. That was their slavery. Those were the elementary principles by which they lived. The Gentiles were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world by seeking their salvation in the worship of idols. Look at verse 8. Same chapter, Galatians 4, verse 8. Paul said, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's idols. Then he says in verse 9, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And so he is is rebuking them for turning back to, in this case, the law of circumcision, to the idol that they had bowed down to before. In other words, he's saying that every single person, as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve, is enslaved to sin enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Some to legalism and some to licentiousness. But it doesn't matter because they're two sides of the same coin of slavery. And slavery in the Scriptures always lead to death. Two weeks ago, Lori and I and a few of our children had a chance to go see and listen to Handel's Messiah at, at Davies Hall in San Francisco. And as we pulled into one of the nearby garages and went down to the third floor, there probably were a hundred or more young people inebriated, smoking and drinking, and many of the women were barely dressed, and we contemplated not parking there and trying to find some other place to park. And as we left the garage and walked up the three blocks to the symphony hall, we saw where all these young people were going. They were attending a concert slash rave. 
one block from where Handel's Messiah was being played. And as we made our way to the concert hall, my heart broke as I thought of Paul's words to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 came to mind. He said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the blatant licentiousness of these young people was on display for the world. Without any concern for the law of God, without any concern for culture, for they were truly enslaved to their idols and they were exercising it unashamedly. And then we sat and we enjoyed the San Francisco Symphony perform Handel's Messiah. And a different text was running through my mind. Romans 3.20, where Paul said, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our own sin. Now, for those of you who do not know, Handel's Messiah is a gospel-saturated symphony. It traces the miraculous birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death and resurrection, and the glorious hope of the return of Christ through music. And the lyrics, without exception, are all Scripture. Isaiah, Zechariah, the Psalms, Matthew, Luke, 1 Corinthians 15 in particular, dealing with death and resurrection, and the book of Revelation. All Scripture, all Gospel. This symphony sang about judgment. They quoted Malachi 3.2, But who may abide the day of His coming, and who shall stand when He appeareth? For He, for His is like a refiner's fire. They sang of the darkness and the coming of the light of Christ. Isaiah 9.2, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. And then they sang to all present, Jesus Christ as the one who has the power to take away sins. They sang John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The entire gospel, complete, accompanied by some of the finest musicianship in the world. And yet as I sat and I looked at the 2,500 souls present, I knew that most probably did not know Jesus Christ as Lord. Now they weren't across the street indulging their flesh, the elementary principles of this world, by attending that rave. In fact, everyone was dressed quite nice. We all looked proper. Behavior seemed proper, so much so that 2,500 people waited to cough and sneeze until intermission in order not to offend the musicians or those singing. At the end of the performance, the crowd gave three standing ovations but had they been mindful of the words that were being sung, there should have been only two proper responses to the gospel being proclaimed. Number one, repentance of sin and faith in the Lamb of God who they heard would take away the sins of the world. There should have been salvation taking place. The other response, they should have at least booed and maybe stormed the stage and grabbed the instruments and destroyed them, and thrown the musicians out for calling them sinners, calling them living in darkness, and calling them to repent of those sins and put their faith in Christ. 
But instead, most were able to hear the full gospel without any conviction of sin or desire to repent. How might that be? Because like many of the Jews in Paul's day, they had convinced themselves that they were good enough. They were proper enough. They were law-abiding enough. They were rich enough. They were educated enough to be granted access into the presence of God on their own effort. My beloved, the struggle between legalism and licentiousness is the plight for all of us. The Bible teaches very clearly that apart from the power of Jesus Christ, every single person is enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Some of you this very morning are still enslaved by legalism. You still think that somehow if you can know this word and you can live in accordance with it, you will be satisfied in Christ and therefore able to receive and enter the kingdom on your own. Some of you have made up your own laws and then you attain to those laws and think that is sufficient to enter heaven. Others fall into that latter camp of licentiousness, disregarding the very laws of God and your own conscience and worshiping the idols that you think give you purpose and pleasure. And for many of us, we do both. We are legalistic and licentious at the same time. Either way, slavery is the universal plight for mankind. So why did the Son of God have to solve it? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. If the plight for all mankind is universal slavery, legalism, licentiousness, or a combination thereof, why did the Son of God have to be the one to come and solve it? The answer is simple and utterly profound. The only way that we could be set free from these forms of slavery was for God, the Father, to intervene by sending His Son. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, so remember Paul has established the universal slavery of all mankind, Galatians chapter 3 under the law, verses 1, 2, and 3, like children heirs in the house enslaved under the guardians and managers. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The phrase, when the fullness of time comes, it ties back to verse 2, the date set by the father when the children would inherit the estate, no longer heirs and waiting, no longer guardians and managers over them. And the Bible tells us that this date, this fullness of time, when the Son of God would come and enter the world, was ordained before the foundations existed. Before anything was created, the Son had planned to become a man and do this great work. In fact, it's so early predicted that even in Genesis chapter 3, When God is cursing Satan, he reveals that he, God, will become a man. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, listen with all your might. Speaking to Satan, the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Adam and Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. In other words, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God had promised to Adam and Eve right after the fall that He would send an offspring of the woman, a man, flesh and blood, to come and bruise, crush, and destroy the works of Satan. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The reason the Son of God appeared was what? To destroy the works of the devil. In order for this promise to be fulfilled, three miraculous things would have to take place. First, God the Father would have to send God the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 4 again. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And so very early, the Apostle Paul is teaching what the church had already affirmed, is that there is one true living God, and within that Godhead, there are three eternally distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it would be the Son of God, the second person, who would come Himself in the flesh as the Savior of man. He did not become God's Son when He became a man. The Bible teaches, and the church has affirmed for millennia, that he has always been God's son, the eternally what? Begotten, uncreated son of God. And the father has always been the father, eternally unbegotten father to the son from eternity past. The full implications of this, I dare say, can barely be communicated with human language. But we must embrace it because it is glorious. Rather than sending a substitute or a surrogate, God Himself came. But in order for God to come, something else had to happen. A second work. We're told that the Son of God would have to what? Be born of a woman. Verse 4 again. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Oh, I hope you do not take these things lightly. I know for years you've heard it during the Christmas story. But these truths are utterly profound and life-changing. Jesus did not come as he had in the Old Testament. Jesus was all over the Old Testament. He was in theophany after theophany. right? He's speaking to Moses by the burning bush. He, He ascends the mountain and he's there in smoke and cloud and fire and earthquake. He's a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night over the tabernacle. He descends in the Shekinah glory of the temple in the holiest of holies, but not this time. Paul had already established that Jesus in his full divinity as the Son of God, and now Paul reveals his full humanity. The Son of God, the second person of the holy triune God from eternity past, became a man. Like you and me, flesh and bone, could touch, could talk to, could feel, could experience pain, could relate, could eat. The Savior had to be born fully man in order to fulfill the promises of Genesis 3, did he not? From the seed of the woman, Satan would be overthrown. From the seed of a woman, that woman was Mary. So this had to happen. But God, listen, God doesn't just make prophecies to fulfill prophecies. That's not the reason. The prophecy was put in place to explain the reason. The one who would come and set sinful man free, listen, I tested someone this week, and I said, was there any other way? And this man said, yes. And I said, well, what was that other way? Tell me what the other way was. Jesus prayed in the garden, what? Lord, if there's any other way for this cup to pass, then let it be, but your will be done. There was no other way. In order for man to be set free, a man in flesh and blood had to be what? An acceptable sacrifice to God. Another man. You see, the Bible teaches clearly, now follow me on this, the wages of sin is death, eternal death, damnation. 
And the Bible also teaches the only way that sin can be paid for is by the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22. But not just any blood will do. Either you as a sinner must have your blood shed and you experience the punishment of an eternity in hell for your sins, that's option number one, or you have to have a perfect substitute, a perfect substitute who pays for your sins in full by His blood. Therefore, you are set free, option number two. That's why the substitute could not be a sheep or a bull. It couldn't even be an angel. It had to be a man because man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Only of mankind did God say in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are told that the highest value of all creatures is given to man by God. And therefore, no other substitute would be acceptable other than another image bearer. And not just any image bearer would do, but a perfect image bearer. If Christ had committed one sin in his own life, he would have to pay for it himself. He could not pay for your sins and his own. He had to be perfect. Someone who lived a perfect life, born under the same law as every other man. But listen, free from the curse of the law. You say, well, how did that happen? I I think this is one of the things that makes the Christmas narrative so miraculous. He was born what? Of the Virgin Mary. The Son of God was born supernaturally by the conception of the Holy Spirit in the woman. Genesis chapter 3. So Jesus becomes the second Adam. He did not inherit the sins of the first Adam and therefore he could become the new Adam of a new people, the perfect man, the new head of a 1 Peter 2.9 chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. So the Savior had to be the Son of God because He had to be sinless. And the Savior had to be fully man because only a man would be an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. One more thing. I hope you didn't miss it. Chapter, verse 4 again. When the fullness of time had come, number one, God sent forth His Son. Number two, born of a woman. And number three, born under the law. Being born without sin did not mean that Jesus was not subject or immune to life in this fallen world. Oh, he experienced it full well. All the trials, all the suffering, all the temptations that you go through each and every day, he battled as well because he was fully man. But by being born in the flesh and living a human life, he can identify with our pain. He can identify with the human condition. We're told in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things. Why? Listen. So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Again, the emphasis and destruction of Satan, who has the power of sin and death over us. And a little later in Hebrews 4.15, we are told, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Without sin. Oh, we have the perfect high priest. Not just in his sinlessness, but in his humanity. He knows the pain. He knows the suffering. I would argue infinitely more than us. 
He experienced the hardship that every man, woman, and child experiences being born in the flesh in a fallen world. But Christ also experienced the eternal wrath of God on the cross. So when you say to yourself, in those moments of pity, no one knows my pain, no one knows my suffering, that is a lie. Christ knows and Christ sympathizes. All without sin. Jesus was born into the, under the law. He was born into a Jewish home. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He attended synagogue. He read and studied the Torah. He prayed to his heavenly father. He was like any other Jewish man with this one exception. He, unlike any human being before or since, faithfully fulfilled, listen, every law, every precept, every dictate, every ordinance of God's word. Without exception. He lived the perfect human life. And so he was the the child heir in verses 1 through 2. However, he was never enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He was freed from the curse of Adam. And so Jesus was able to do what we cannot do. He was able to live a sinless life in perfect, loving obedience to God the Father. And therefore... In that perfect life, he was able to ascend the cross in his flesh, in his human body, knowing that God would receive the sacrifice because he was sinless and fully man. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew the Father would receive the sacrifice because he was 100% human, just like us, and therefore he was an acceptable sacrifice, and yet he was without sin, and therefore he could die For others, he could be ransomed for many. This is what we call, we had a chance to sing it, substitutionary atonement. God, the Son, atoning for our sins through his death as a substitute in our place. So we don't have to experience that wrath. This is the very heart of the gospel. And this is what makes Christmas so extraordinary. That God the Son became a man, that he took on flesh, that he lived the sinless life. He died the sinner's death on the cross. He satisfied the perfect, holy, righteous wrath of the living God so that we, deserving of the wrath, could have the Father. So that we, deserving of eternal damnation, could know the love and intimacy and relationship of being sons and daughters of the Father. I know if you spend enough time thinking about Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man, your brain will come to a complete stop. Don't feel bad. It took the church almost 400 years to come to an understanding of the orthodoxy of what we call the hypostatic union, that he is fully man and fully God at the same time. And you should spend the rest of your life meditating on that. It is a glorious thought. But I pray that the mystery of the incarnation of the God-man, Jesus Christ, does not prevent you from seeing the majesty and the beauty and the power of it. His entrance into the world, God's incarnation, it is greater than the Genesis 1 account. It is greater than the creation of all that is seen and unseen. It is greater than the glorious Exodus account that we've looked at in Exodus 1-13. through that the Israelites held on to for 1,500 years as the greatest work of God. It is greater than all the prophecies fulfilled, all the miracles performed, all the teachings that we have. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is fantastic 
And it's one of the reasons that last week, millions of people throughout the world stopped to celebrate it, to recognize that it's not only true and that it's not only extraordinary, but it has, most importantly, the power to change your life for God's glory, to change your life for the glory of God. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what? To save sinful man. That is the Christmas miracle you need. It's not that present you always wanted. It's not that husband or wife. It's not that job or that degree. It's Christ. It's Christ. So we've seen the problem. We're all enslaved to sin. We've seen why the Son of God had to solve the problem. Only He can. Last one. I pray you're still with me. Number three, how, did the, how, did, how does the incarnation benefit mankind? Look at verse four again. When the fullness of time had come, that's when Christ was born to the Virgin Mary. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive as adoption as sons. And now, the true purpose of Christmas is revealed in verse 5. It's not about the ho-ho-hos and mistletoes and presents to pretty girls. Nor was it given to us and celebrated by us to cause us to be in a perpetual state of confusion, trying to figure out how God became fully man and remained fully man while being fully God. Christmas was and remains, as Pastor Kurt said so beautifully on Christmas Eve, a rescue mission. You want to think about Christmas properly? It was a rescue mission. It is a rescue mission. The Son of God became a man and was put under the law so he could what? So he could redeem man from the curse of the law and so that he could make sons and daughters heirs of the kingdom for his Father. A chosen people. The word redeemed here, same word used in Galatians chapter 3, Verses 10 through 13, let me just read this to you. For all who rely, this is Galatians 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now listen, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, you can live the perfect life and break one law and that is subject to hell. That's the curse. And then he says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us, bought us back, same as here we have in verse 5, redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, the purpose and goal of the incarnation of Christ was the humiliation of Christ. We could argue that Christ was the only man that was born to die, that he fulfilled his purpose in the humiliation and death upon the cross. That's why Paul was able to say in Romans 8, 3, that he was made in the likeness of what? Of sinful flesh. In becoming a man, he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh that he might receive in his flesh the due penalty for our sins so that God could, now listen, so that God could condemn sin in the flesh on the cross, that he could condemn a man for the sins of others. And in so doing, Receive as righteous all those, listen, in the flesh too. All those in the flesh who find Christ alone as the sole and sufficient substitute for the sin that we cannot repay, for the debt we cannot clear. 
one of the most profound truths of the Christmas story is that the Son of God not only became a man for us, He became cursed for us. The perfect man became cursed for us. He made our awful doom His own. One commentator put it like this. He said, it is this punishment that His work as our our Redeemer lies For it is in this that the measure, or rather the immensity, of His love is seen. The immensity of His love is seen in His sacrifice in the flesh for our sins. But the immensity of His love was not only revealed in His rescuing us from the ravages of hell. My beloved, that's sufficient. If you are saved from hell and you stayed for the remainder of eternity in this place, that would be sufficient to give Him praise and glory and honor forever. But God always outdoes Himself. He always moves way beyond our minimal expectations. Christmas includes your adoption into the family of God. Christmas includes the God-man dying for your sins that you might become a son or daughter of His heavenly Father, an heir to the kingdom. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you just stop for a minute and let that sink in, it only has to touch your cerebral cortex for you to melt. The creator of the universe found it out of His love, right to not only save you from hell, but make you a son or daughter to bring you all the way into the family that you might call out to him, Father, and he might say, yes, son, Father, yes, daughter, now and forever. That's quite a a change in our station, is it not? From sinners deserving of eternal damnation to sons and daughters and heirs of the kingdom. How does that happen other than through the cross of Christ? This has always been the redemptive plan It's always been part of God's plan, not just to save us from hell, but to bring us into the family, to make us sons and daughters. Ephesians 1.5, Paul said, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He always planned it. This wasn't an afterthought. This wasn't a post-Genesis 3, oh man, the creation screwed up, i got to fix this. Always part of God's redemptive plan to make sinners saved by grace, sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, who do what? Who receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here's the great redemptive picture for you. Here's your Christmas Day revelation. God the Father sends God the Son to redeem sinful man. God the Father and God the Son then then send God the Holy Spirit to live and dwell in the heart of those who repent and believe. And so you have this beautiful picture of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit actively involved in the redemption of the lost. Actively involved. God the Spirit dwelling in us. I don't know what I'm supposed to be leveled by more. The fact that I'm redeemed from hell, the fact that I'm a son or daughter of God, or the fact that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, dwells in me, beyond me, saints. But the Bible says so, and therefore it is true. 
that God dwells in you if you belong to Christ. God dwells in you, enabling you no longer as a slave under the law, no longer a child heir in waiting, but a child, a son, a daughter, in full measure, able to call out to God what? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, most of the time when we hear this preached or taught on, there's a tendency to use the English word daddy because it conveys intimacy. And that's not wrong. Abba does mean intimacy between a father and a son or a father and a daughter. But that's not the emphasis here. It's an Aramaic expression. And it was used in the Mishnah Torah as a legal term. It's legal language. And this is what it means. And I hope you never hear it the same again. It was used as a designation by grown children in claiming their inheritance and getting what God had promised. So when Paul is saying that you have the Holy Spirit and you cry out, Abba, Father, you are saying, I now am in Christ. I am now a son or daughter. I am now an heir of the kingdom. No longer under the curse of the law. No longer a child in waiting under the guardians and managers, under the rules and regulations. No longer a slave, but brought in through Christ into the very heart of God as mature daughters and sons in the family of our Heavenly Father. And that's why Paul is so so broken by what the Galatians had done. He's saying, why are you going back to the elementary principles of this world? Why are you going back to the law? Why are you going back to your idols? You're a son. You're a daughter. You're an heir to a kingdom. Look at verse 7. He says, you are no longer a slave. You can almost hear Paul screaming it in love. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's your identity in Christ. And herein lies, I believe, the true Christmas miracle. Because the Son of God came in the flesh under the law and in fact gave his life as a ransom for many, if you are in him... If you have, listen, if you've repented of your sins, truly turned from them, sought forgiveness from God, received that forgiveness, and you've put all your faith and all your trust and all your hope in the substitute Savior, in the God-man, then you have, whether you know it or not and whether you live like it or not, you have been set free. You have been set free from the curse of the law. You've been set free from the temptation of your flesh to bow down to idol after idol. You've been set free to live in the freedom that Christ possesses. You've been set free from that burden of trying to be... Listen, saints, some of you are still trapped by this. Be perfect. The Bible says be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is what we are to strive for. But our perfection comes from Christ. Your righteousness comes from Christ. Some of you, and you know, you're still bound by it. You still see the law and say, oh, I've got to do that. I've got to make that happen by my own power and my own strength. Instead of leaning upon the Holy Spirit to do that with you and for you. Years ago, one of my former students, she was raised in a very strict, conservative Jewish household. She came to know Christ while I had her as a student. The transformation was extraordinary. She was a model student before she knew Christ. 
I mean, she, she worked hard in class. She was respectful. She was kind to others. She was a very moral kid, what you would expect being raised in a Jewish home. But for the first half of the year that I had her, I noticed that she struggled with depression and as though there was a burden upon her to be this good child. And then in the spring of her senior year, she came to know Christ, and she was set free from the burden of the law, from the curse of the law. No longer did she try to earn her way into God's good grace. No longer did she see her, her, her mitzvahs as tickets into heaven. Instead, she put all her faith in the work of Christ and received his righteousness in full. And two remarkable changes took place in her life that I was able to to witness. One, she was filled with joy. She became a joyful person, no longer having that sense of the burden of the law and her keeping it in order to make it in. She was in because of the work of Christ. She was in by grace through faith, and that gave her great joy. But something else happened. She became more holy. You say, well, how does that work? She, she realized the law was a tutor to lead her to Christ, and then in her faith, by repenting and believing and pursuing Christ, she received the Holy Spirit, and so she now desired to be a better student and a better friend and a better daughter and a better sister, and she was. She was. What was once a duty and a burden became a choice because she desired to be holy as Christ is holy out of her love for God. My beloved, if you, if you battle with legalism like this former student of mine, if you strive to be moral, honoring your parents, reading your Bible, praying, coming to church on Sunday in order to earn your way into God's good grace, you will know nothing but the depression and slavery the curse of the law brings. But if you, like this young lady, if you repent and believe and Christ becomes your Savior, then you can know the peace and the joy that set you free from that curse. And not only will you be more joyful, but you will be more holy. Your duty will become choice and you'll want to pursue holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. So one of the great benefits of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and those who repent and believe is that we are set free from the curse of the law and we can live in the joy and the power of the Spirit. But there's, some, there's another piece of this. Remember, the problem was legalism and licentiousness. Being in Christ now means you're no longer a child heir and waiting. Remember, the date was set by the Father. When the fullness of time came, he sent Christ to set us free. So you're not in the house, in the estate, waiting under the guardians and managers to become someone. You already are a son or daughter if you are in Christ. You're already an heir if you're in Christ. And that means right now, whether you know it or not, all the blessings of heaven belong to you. Every single one is already yours. All the blessings of heaven currently belong to you, regardless, now listen closely, regardless of your current circumstances. Your circumstances, your life station does not determine the blessings of heaven belonging to you. You have been set free from the eternal burden of trying to fulfill that void by indulging in the flesh. My beloved, my heart broke when I saw those young people going to that raid because I knew that 
I knew that as a young person. I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to get a hold of something, a moment, an experience, a pleasure that could fill that vacancy in their heart that only God can fill through Christ. All the idols we submit to, all the sex, all the entertainment, all the food, all the self-glory, they're all attempts to give us an identity other than son or daughter of God the Father. Everyone. Whatever idol you have in your life, you're trying to give yourself an identity and a purpose and a pleasure that's not son or daughter of God. That's why we submit to them. Sin stripped us of our true identities, and therefore, apart from Christ, we spend our entire lives, and if you die apart from Christ, you'll spend all of eternity trying to figure out who you are. Whatever you must have in 2020, that job or degree or relationship, whatever you must have other than Christ is your life, as you just had a chance to sing, it's an idol and it's trying to fill a void that only God through Christ can fill. Last month, Instagram CEO Adam, Mo- is it Mosery, announced the company's decision to hide like counts from everyone except the content creator. You know what I'm talking about, right? You want that thumbs up, you want that like. You post a picture, you post a saying, you want someone to affirm it, and it gives you the count. Two people like it, 10 people like it, 20 people like it. Well, he announced last month that they're gonna hide that except for those who receive it. Multiple studies are now linking increased levels of anxiety, depression, loneliness, and even suicide to social media accounts, specifically the number of likes a user does or does not get. Now, the social media companies like Instagram are trying to respond with a tech solution. And and I'm thankful that they are thinking about it. But let me tell you what they probably don't know is that no technology is going to solve the identity crisis that man experiences as a result of sin. Technology cannot overcome mankind's desperate need to be known and loved simultaneously by the living God. To have an identity, listen, independent of your looks, an identity independent of your career or your education or the number of likes you get on Instagram. Only God, through the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ, can overcome man's identity crisis. You must have your identity, your true identity given to you by God in Christ, becoming a son or daughter of God the Father through faith, becoming an heir of the kingdom of God through Christ. That's why you were created. That's your true identity. This is the only way that you can be set free from the curse of the law and the only way you can be set free from the curse of your flesh and the bowing down to idols. No more legalism, no more licentiousness. Instead, what? Holy Spirit indwelt sons and daughters of the living God, heirs of a kingdom that has no end. Sons and daughters who do not live for themselves but for others. Heirs of a kingdom that do not live for themselves but serve others with the love of the gospel of grace and freedom. Now, I don't know what you got for Christmas. And I don't know what your, your greatest hope is in 2020. But I can guarantee you this. The freedom and the joy that comes from knowing the incarnate Son of God as Savior is infinitely 
infinitely better. Being known by God as son or daughter. Being called an heir of the kingdom of God is infinitely better than any present you can get or any desire or hope other than Christ that you want in this upcoming year. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I think it'd be good for us to start by asking that you would forgive us for diminishing this time of year to something as simple as a Christmas tree and a, a turkey and a few presents under a tree. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for diminishing this time of year to simply reflecting upon a baby in a manger in a land far away 2,000 years ago. I ask instead, Father, that you would, by your grace, through your Spirit, transform the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters and me that we might recognize the power of the incarnation of the Son of God. That in His becoming a man, He can redeem people as wicked as us. He can save us from the eternal torment that we justly deserve and then bring us into Your family. He can take rebels and make sons and daughters out of them. He can take people like us who are anti-kingdom and make us heirs of the very same kingdom that we have rebelled against. Father, we are so thankful that you sent Christ. Jesus, we're so thankful that you sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters that you would set us free from any slavery of any kind, whether we're legalists trying to satisfy the law to please you or full of licentiousness, bowing down to those idols and those fleshly desires. I pray, Lord, that you would show us that we are free in Christ and that we would live free indeed. We praise you, Lord, for the apostles' letter to the church in Galatia. We thank you, Lord, for the true gospel of grace. We don't have to add to it or diminish it, but that we can embrace it in the full power of the Spirit and be the people you desire us to be. I ask, Lord, that in this upcoming year we would live as a true free people. And in that freedom, Father, that we would use our gifts and our talents and our resources to serve and minister to others. That we would be a people that love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would be busy about the sanctification of other souls. That we would seek the salvation of the lost by sharing the gospel with all those in our mission field who do not yet know you. That they too might through Christ become sons and daughters. Father, I pray there be a right heavenly burden upon our church to be the missionaries and the evangelists and the disciple makers that you have called and equipped us to be. We ask this, Lord, not only that we might be blessed in that great work of Christ, but that you might be glorified here in our midst and in this community. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.